You are listening to the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. I'm Graham Brown, your host and founder of Pitch Media Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to investigate the growing role of technology in building an efficient, resilient, and sustainable agri-food supply chain that can deliver fresh, nutritious food to today's fast-changing consumer market. To register for Singapore's annual Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week, being held from the 20th to the 22nd of November, visit us at www.agrifoodinnovation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. Asia's agri-food system is under stress from the impact of climate change, urbanization, soil erosion, pests, and a fragmented supply chain with high loss rate, yet also needs to produce increasing volumes to feed a rapidly growing population. As pressure mounts on farmers to increase the volume, quality and safety of outputs while using fewer resources, reducing wastage and impact on the environment, new digital technologies will be critical to delivering swift, sustainable change in a region still heavily reliant on a manual workforce and traditional farming processes. Faced with challenges including climate change, urbanization, soil erosion, and a fragmented supply chain vulnerable to contamination and disease, how can digital solutions transform the sustainability and financial viability of farming in Asia? To answer this question, I have with me Suresh Sundarara Rajan, President and Group Head of Strategic Investments and Corporate Functions at Olam International. Justin Gong, co-founder and vice president of XAG China, and Jenny Moss, managing director of Rethink Events. Stay tuned. Okay, so I'm joined by Justin Gong, co-founder and vice president of XAG China. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Graham. Good afternoon. Yeah. Well, greetings to you in Beijing, China, all the way from Singapore. So let's talk a little bit about XAG first and also some of the challenges facing farmers and agriculture in Asia. You describe yourself as an agri-tech company. Tell us a little bit about what you do first. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, XAG is founded in 2007. So it's been 12, more than 12 years, actually, we're developing drones and robots uh, for the agriculture industry. Mm-hmm. And basically, we do four things. First thing is to lay the foundation for um, digital farming infrastructure. For example, we use drones to capture the land map so we can provide our farmers and service providers um, high-definition land map. They can use the map to calculate land size, uh, use AI to find the boundary of the land. That's, they can calculate the um, chemical amounts they need to purchase. Uh, also, we provide um, farmland navigation. For instance, uh, people in the city are now using GPS. But if you use GPS, you have one to 10 meters drift. So when you spray chemical or pesticides or herbicide, you will have this drift too. So that's why we use RTK, which is a centimeter level navigation service for the tractors, the drones, and robots. And the second thing we do is to uh, design and manufacture and sell our drones for precision farming. Our drones can automatically fly in the farmland and detect uh, the weeds or disease and spray onto uh, individual plants. The third thing we do is to connect the farmers and the consumers with our, our IoT devices, just like soil sensors, farming cameras, and all that. Um, and the last thing we do is because we have a lot of devices in the field, we're collecting data and the data can help us to further understand the plant growing status. So mm. the agriculture AI is growing based on the data. Okay, let's get a top level view of the agritech and agricultural industry in Asia as a starter as well. And mm-hmm. I guess before we even get there, Justin, what is the problem you're actually solving? I mean, it sounds great having all this technology for agriculture, but fundamentally, what is the problem that lies underneath all of this? Okay. It's a, it's a very big game in between human and nature, things we started agriculture, right? So um, according to FAO, the population in Asia, in Africa, Latin America is still growing very fast but land is not growing. So we need to solve the problem of 
you know, using limited land to feed more and more people. So the, the priority of the technology is to replace the labor in the agriculture society. That's why we started using drones um, to spray the chemical, to separate people from chemical exposure to the chemical. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is using data for better decision-making because farming is like gambling. Every season they have to make decisions after decisions. And if you make one thing wrong, everything goes wrong. Mm. So I think basically two things, machine replace human being, labor, um, data replace experience. Yeah, the last part is very interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at many mm-hmm. sort of aligned industries, a lot of the data is stored in the heads of very ex- experienced people. And, and in many cases, yes. they're making decisions which are intuitive to them and yes. decisions which are difficult to explain to other people, to train other people with. Right. So somebody who has 30 years experience in agriculture can tell you that this is a better option than that because they just know and they might not be mm-hmm. able to articulate that. So how has that been in terms of, I guess there's two parts of the question. First part is really, you know, in terms of getting results and, and secondly, in terms of adoption, yes. because I imagine people with 30 years of experience will be maybe initially suspicious of any kind of data-led solution that you can't actually turn all that kind of intuitive decision-making, that experience into mm-hmm. hard numbers. Let's talk about the first part, the results. How can that actually turn gambling into you know, something that's a bit more intelligent than speculation? Okay. Um, so we are growing more than 200 different crops in China uh, to, to feed everyone. And Every season, you will see it's slightly different. For instance, this spring is a bit drier than last year. And then to select um, you know, certain kind of variety of the seed and then make, make decision on when, what date to plant and then when to start watering and, and give fertilizer is always based on the experience for the local farmer. Mm. But according to our database, we can actually find a better date for them to plant the seed because we can project some of the weather um, and also we can uh, calculate accumulation of the sunlight, of the temperature and everything. So we can make it actually based on that data and the calculation. Um, and we have some assumptions of what you know is the best for the farmer and for the crop. So based on our experience from last year, um, Farmers who are using our service um, take cotton, for example, in, in northwest China, Xinjiang. Um, we can increase about 17% of cotton yield uh, using our drones and a data decision. Mm. How does that compare to historical technological advances? 17%? Not as a cotton farmer, I don't understand whether that's a radical leap forward or that's just marginal. I mean, where would you see mm-hmm. such kind of, I mean, would it be like the introduction of the plow to agriculture, for example? Is that a significant step change in yield? Uh, yes, it is. 17% is quite a lot. So how the 17% comes from is, first, we are not using tractors anymore to spray anything. Mm. The tractor, once you run a tractor into the field, you will crush, automatically crush, at least 5 to 7% of the crop especially at the later bit of the season when the cotton starts to uh, op- cotton ball starts to open up and if you have if you drive a tractor into the field you'll crash a lot of the cotton balls um, and the second thing is things we are not using tractor there's no soil compaction so the the health condition of the soil in terms of biodiversity is much much better and then it will help the plant to absorb better nutrition i mean minerals and fertilizers mm-hmm. so this is all helping that and also efficiency every year in the past every year they have to hire at least six six hundred thousand people from other provinces to go to xinjiang just to, to spray a chemical regulator mm-hmm. on the cotton because either you need to using hand to pick tip of the cotton to stop from growing or you can spray some chemical in the u.s they are using big um, air plants to spray the chemical and the result is it's good but it's about 75 percent efficiency uh, efficacy uh, but when you use hand picking it's 100 percent because you can make sure every cotton stop growing too high and then you have better yield but now we can use drones to detect the growing status and then spray the chemical regulator so it's a combination of efficiency also precision 
That's why we can get uh, more than 10% all the way to 17% of mm. uh, yield increase. You've mentioned the US as a comparison. Yep. If you were to look yep. at farming in the US now and look at farming mm -hmm. in some of the regions you're operating in China, what, what are the main comparisons? I mean, crops aside, but in terms of mindset and in terms of the use of technologies as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are a big difference, very big difference between the US and China's um, farming industry, actually. US farms are usually quite big, uh, especially in the Midwest, and, um, and they are growing um, only a couple of types of uh, um, crops, for example, soybean is always on the uh, in the topic um the big farm is designed designed for efficiency right so you can use big equipment like the boom sprayer the central pivot boom um using they even build airport to host all the uh, crop dusting aircraft and then they they have huge machinery john deere tractors and all that mm. but in china land are not necessarily belong to the farmer it's belong to the the, the government so farmers are usually just higher a small piece of land to grow food. Uh, we call it smallholders, right? Smallholders economy. So the the crop diversification in China is uh, much um, bigger, and also, uh, but the farmers' efficiency of production are much lower. So that's also determined their mindset. For the U.S. farmer, they their thinking is more like running a factory. Mm. How many resources input? How many product will come out? And, you know, they, they are working on a calendar, around a calendar. But in China, the farmers are a bit more flexible. But flexible also meaning uh, more, risks, more risks. So our job is to turn Chinese farmers' mindset into not necessarily the U.S. farmers' mindset, but to have a scientific thinking of everything can be under control if we have some, you know, data and we can plan ahead. Hmm. What was the general acceptance of that mindset? Do they get it? straight away or does it take a lot of education to get farmers thinking about these kind of concepts surprisingly um actually chinese farmer taking the new technology quite fast mm. i think it's because of the last 20 years of um, technological you know innovation in china um in chinese farmland you can usually get a really good reception of 4g network um many many counties and cities already connected by high-speed railways we also have digital payment, WeChat, Alipay on everyone's smartphone. So that has already laid a foundation of technological acceptance for Chinese farmer. And when we introduce the technology, we can send out, you know, electric um, news um, and, and, and it, it can be really fast adopted by the farmers. Hmm. So the, in that case, I imagine the drone is a key cornerstone of the, the modern Chinese farm, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about some of the applications of drones and particularly okay. where it's more sort of cutting edge in China than it is in the rest of the world? Okay. Uh, yes, we do describe the drone as uh, the key to open the digital farming world because in China we've seen already more than 6 million farmers are using our services. And we have serviced about 20 million hectares of land so far. And uh, what we are doing is first, in order to provide drone crop testing service, you have to have a higher definition map. It uh, should be better than Google map because we need to know where's the field first, how big is the size, and then what's the, where's the boundary? Is there any power lines, cables in the, in the field, any obstacles? So our drone can fly automatically. In order to do that, we have to survey the land first. So if you are one of our dealer in your county, you should send up a survey drone from XAG to survey the land, and then you will have all, your, all the information of the land in your, on your computer. And then when the farmer comes to you, uh, you're a service provider or drone dealer, you can ask them to pick which field is yours, and then the farmer will select, oh, that's my field. And then we bind his ID, phone number, Alipay account with the field, and then we have the basic farmer's information. And then, if the farmer need to spray anything, first we will ask what you know uh, what he's growing, and then we type in the basic information. We also have uh, agronomy team to use the drone image to analyze uh, the crop growing status, so we can give him a prescription map. According to the prescription map, he can purchase chemical precisely. In the past. 
you know, um, the, the chemical dealers always use the information, um, you know, um, in transparency to sell more and more chemicals to the farmer. But today, the farmer knows better than the chemical dealer. So they can say, okay, I just want 200 grams of uh, this chemical and uh, I need it now or tomorrow to be sprayed, something like that. And then they can rent the drone or ask for the service to spray, using the drone to spray the chemical into their field. And during the operation, the drone also collects data, um, you know, for, for example, the, the, the spray status. And uh, also we have uh, radar underneath every drone to detect the growing speed of the plant. So every time after spray, we even produce a report to the farmer, just like you went to the hospital uh, and before you did a blood check, so we can give you a prescription. And after the treatment, we also do another check for you. Make sure we have done the service uh, efficiently and uh, has efficacy. So the, the farmer has been used to do this, to do this service and they are become more and more accepted by um, the technology. Yeah, I'm fascinated in terms of technological impact is beyond the improvements in efficiency and efficacy is really how technology in all industries changes behavior. And often we only discover that when it is actually there in the field um, and -hmm. people are actually using. And what have you observed in how farmers now maybe think differently, but also behave differently about their businesses now that they have this right. technology and data, are there obvious examples beyond simply an improvement in yield? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, first of all, we, we've seen the distribution channels has been changed for all the agricultural resources. For instance, if you are a farmer in China and now you, it's the beginning of the season and you start to planning um, what to grow, you know, usually you will ask around, you know, your friends and someone else in the village. But today they will go online to look on our XAG Academy to see what is best to grow in their region. We even provide soil testing service to tell them what can be grown and what will be good to grow here. And second is when they're going to purchase the resources, in, you know, like the seeds, and chemicals, fertilizers, they don't need necessarily go to a chemical dealer and ask for their help. They can actually use data and calculation and, and they, they know exactly what they want. And even though they, even they ask our service providers to sell, to help them to buy the chemicals. So the traditional distribution channel has shifted from a chemical dealer who have large amount of capital and, and branding changed to the service providers like the cooperatives or the young people who are, you know, purchase our drone and go back to their homeland to provide service. They become the channel of chemical fertilizer distribution. So that's the first change. And the second change is the relationship in between uh, farmers and consumers. Um, To say that is because we are seeing more and more consumers have higher demand of their quality of food and also uh, even um, ethnical uh, farming behaviors. So in order to meet that demand, the farmers are changing their behavior too. We call this good agriculture practice, GAP program. Under the GAP practice, the farmer will do everything under the camera. Just like you know, um, in, the, in the bank, you have camera, so you can't do something wrong. Everything will be recorded. This is helping the farmer and also encouraging the good behaviors to be seen by the consumers. So that's the second layer. The relationship has been changed. The trust has been rebuilt. And the third one is digitalization. Um, we've seen all the tractors you know, running in the field, but every inch the tractor has serviced never been digitized, but every inch piece of land serviced by our drone has been digitized. So once you give the data to the farmer, the farmer will become scientist. They start to build you know, data-based um, thinking and internet-based thinking. So this is helping us to grow our AI for the future. Mm. I imagine now that this must be encouraging a different type of person into farming and agriculture because the role is evolving, isn't it? From something yes. which farming has long suffered from an aging labor base, hasn't it? Yes. It was a, an yes. industry that didn't attract the brightest and youngest talent from universities. And Not those are the people that went to the city. So is that now changing? Because it sounds like 
the kind of role that you're describing of a farmer, like you say, as a scientist, somebody who has a relationship with a customer, somebody who has access to tools, knowledge, and data. And mm -hmm. it's almost like being their own startup founder in a way. So are you seeing a different type of farmer now appearing? Yes. I think we have to redefine the word farmer because farmer is not um, occupation because a farmer means he has a piece of land and he has to make everything himself, do everything by himself. That's not a job. A job should be professionalized, right? So nowadays we can see there are young generation people returning to the farmland are dedicating doing the service. For example, there are a group of um, um, people from the university and they purchased the survey drone and they are providing the survey land survey service. There are um, people who studied computer vision and deep learning, helping farmers to identify different diseases and pests and weeds. And there are some people who have low education level, but they can they do, they do hard work. So they are dedicated to transport the drones, even doing the washing of the drones every evening after the service. So the, the, the classification of the farm work is being you know um, more and more um, refined in China. We can see that. And uh, in our in our system, we have more than fifty thousand people already um, in this system doing providing service to the farmers. Fantastic. It's an exciting time to be involved in agriculture. Who would have thought we were saying that? But Justin, thank you for sharing your inspiring insights as well. And the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week is upon us. And you're going to be there. I want to ask you, Justin, if you could set one priority for the players coming together for that event, all the people in mm -hmm. the agri-food ecosystem what would you like to see them thinking about and working on together? Okay. I believe the future of our agriculture and the food industry will be diversity. The priority is diversity because diversity can help us to improve biodiversity, environmental protection, and also to meet the demand for the consumers. So how to use technology to empower the next generation farmers and to make smallholders' economy boom is our priority. That's Justin Gong, everybody, co-founder and vice president of XAG China. Justin, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you, Graham. This is Graham Brown. I'm with Suresh Sundararajan, president and group head of strategic investments and corporate functions at Olam International. Suresh, welcome. Thanks, Graham. It's great to have you here. Well, we're going to talk about Olam. Agritech and the obstacles, the challenges you face in this industry. I think you see yourselves as challenges in the agri and food systems. Tell us more about Olam first. Yeah, Olam uh, is relatively a very young player in the space compared to large companies like ADM, Pungi, Cargill, Dreyfus, which have been in existence for more than 100 years plus. We're just 30 years old. We started our operations in 1989 from Nigeria. We look at ourselves as insurgents in the space, which is evidently demonstrated by the growth that we have achieved in the last 30 years, building uh, dominant positions in each of our agricultural businesses. The uniqueness of Olam is our integration end-to-end -end in the uh, supply chain, whether you would like to call it as from to fork or seed to shelf, having deep presence in producing countries across the world and having strong customers in destination markets. Mm. So the the founding DNA spirit of Olam is being entrepreneurial, and that's largely helped us to build global positions in many of these businesses. And our unique presence in this agri-supply chain, especially given our footprint, dominant footprint in emerging countries, gives us the opportunity to change the supply chain, which is why Olam's corporate purpose is to reimagine supply chain, agricultural supply chain and food systems across the globe. And we try to do that in a way that creates a positive impact for farmers, for growers, for the middlemen in the supply chain, as well as the customers that we work with to supply these commodities. Mm. When you say you are insurgents, you're entrepreneurial, you're there to change supply chains. And obviously, you've had an impact initially in emerging countries. What, what is the problem that we need to find a solution for? What's the fundamental problem that you're all about solving? There are a few, not one. I think if you look at from the perspective of uh, producers, the problems 
small holder farmers face are different from the problems large growers faced in developed economies. So we are trying to bring in agricultural practices that are sustainable and has a net positive impact on the livelihood of the farming communities. So smallholder farmers have uh, several problems in terms of not being economically being able to produce and reinvest the amounts in agriculture. While some problems are common for large and small growers like unpredictable weather patterns and climate change, uh, topsoil erosion, Small farmers have far more problems like lack of market access, uh, uh, lack of access to mechanized equipments, financing options. Uh, these really plague small farmers in Asia, Africa, and South America. So we are trying to see how our presence could help using, obviously, technology and uh, much broader collaboration with the ecosystem, how we can change the lives of the farmers and farming communities. Hmm. With customers, we have another problem of how we could get the produce in a traceable uh, and sustainable manner. Most of our large customers who are in the uh, food space, manufacturing ingredients or direct consumable uh, food products are increasingly concerned about how the produce is delivered to the factories. They want to make sure that they are traceable. They want to make sure that they are sustainable. And there is no one in this industry apart from Molam who's better positioned to provide those traceable and sustainable solutions to the customers. Okay, so we'll come to the customers in a minute. I think it's a fascinating area. Starting with the origin, the farmers themselves. You talk about smallholder farmers. We're going to talk about technology, financing, and so on. What would you define as a smallholder farmer? So people can understand the avatar of a smallholder. Typically in Asia, who are they? You know, what are their backgrounds and, you know, why are they doing it? Typically, you could classify small order farmers or farmers having about just one hectare of land. And in Asia, for example, a dominant percentage of farmers fall in this category, whether it's Indonesia, Laos, Myanmar, India, Vietnam, Thailand. You'll have anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of uh, the farmers holding uh, land of uh, less than one hectare. That's really defined as the smallholder farmers, mm. most of whom uh, also do sustenance farming. And uh, anything beyond that is what is providing the income for them. So are these farmers then open to using technology? I mean, are they, dare I ask, are they literate enough to use technology? What's the sort of general receptiveness and how do you get into this market? They are largely literate enough to use technology, but the issue is not about their ability to use technology. The issue is about how technology could be brought to them at affordable cost. For example, a big tumbling block in many countries is connectivity. And if connectivity is there, the cost of connectivity. For example, in Indonesia, in rural areas, connectivity could be poor. Whereas in India, connectivity is there, but still there is a digital divide where despite having last mile connectivity, the penetration of smartphone ownership and using data to avail services for smart agriculture is not very prevalent. Literacy or lack of it of the farmer is not a big obstacle. It's about how we can make sure services using technology are provided at affordable cost. Hmm. That's key here, whether it's market access or farm equipments on hire, or it's uh, crop care, advisory on pesticides and fertilizers, affordable financing. All these uh, could be provided if we can channel and create a strong, deep access with the farming communities. In India, most of the farmers are on Facebook. For example, we are running a pilot. We are trying to create OLM agnostic platform, trying to provide various services to farmers. This is something that we set up 18 months back. Hmm. Today, half a million farmers have downloaded the app. 400,000 farmers are using it regularly, where OLM provides a suite of services free of cost. Uh, weather information, crop care, uh, agri-bulletin from the Indian government, uh, a farm voice where one farmer could exchange ideas with other farmers. Uh, this is because we are able to see ownership in phones. We are able to see that there is connectivity. But what is very important, what is very crucial is to incentivize a farmer to come onto a platform, a technical platform to use services. There should be what we call as a hook feature. Hmm. What is the hook feature that we are providing for the farmer to take up his smartphone and use it? End of the day, 
Graham, you and me can imagine a farmer stalling at a sun in a field, wet, with dirty hands. There should be a strong incentive to pick up the phone at the end of the day or beginning of the day for a farmer to see what services he could available from the phone, whether it's market prices or it is weather information or is it any important bulletin on agricultural subsidies. So that's that's the key. So everything that we try to do, we try and see what is a hook feature for the farmer which will enable him to engage, him or her to engage technically with us. And that by we could then provide meaningful services to uh, them. Yeah, I'm always curious about what kind of insights these these experiments yield or these large, vast experiments with people who maybe have ex- access to technology that can impact their work for the first time. And often what it is, is these hook features get people onto the platform. And yet what, happens over time and interested to hear your insights in this is how how does that then evolve such that you know maybe the farmers use it in ways beyond anticipated or you find new features or ways of using this which in a way maybe had not been accounted for in the the initial blueprint of this project so are you seeing insights or you learning things about farmers which you didn't know at the beginning of that project Yes, I think good example is our uh, entry into Indonesia two years back, where we wanted to create a platform of services to farmers. We went on the ground to remote buying locations where Olam has a presence. We conducted interviews with farmers and asking questions like, would you be happy if we uh, provide you with weather information, if we provide you with some inputs on, you know, uh, pesticides and uh, diseases that probably affects, say, cocoa as a crop. And to our surprise, we discovered that the farmers' first major and important demand or concern is, can we get the right prices for the cocoa that we are producing? Mm. And can we find somebody who can offtake it and provide us cash? And this, Graham, while I'm being in business for 20 years in uh, Indonesia, had Uh, no direct access to farmers. We are buying from agents. But this was a discovery that farmers are still, the main problem is how to get the produce out as quickly as possible and get the right prices. So we began a trial, a physical trial, even before developing uh, a technology-based solution. We set up uh, phone calls where we would publish daily prices of cocoa directly to the farmers. And if the farmers are interested in selling, they could sell to Olam. And uh, we got tremendous response for that initiative. The farmers who are selling to agents now were able to access a large exporter, one of the largest uh, players of cocoa in the world, and they could see their price realizations are better than uh, selling to agents. Immediately following the physical trial, we developed an app, and now that's an app that we call it as Olam Direct, which is now running in eight countries, and it'll get into 15 countries by the end of this year, where we are sort of uh, revolutionizing the first mile procurement. We are disintermediating agents and directly accessing farmers, which has several benefits in the supply chain for farmers and also for companies like Olam. But what's important is today the farmer in some countries like India has got several solutions offered by different companies. And like you and me as uh, literate urban uh, consumers, we could switch from one app to the other app for getting different services done because it's more like, you know, that's not our mainstay. We work somewhere, but we get into WhatsApp or we get into Airbnb or we get into Booking.com for different services. But a farmer for his livelihood cannot be expected to uh, toggle multiple apps, one for Uh, crop inputs, one for financing, one for insurance, one for market access. This is a problem I think the farmers face because each and every company has an expertise in trying to develop a solution on on focusing on that expertise. But we're also seeing a trend that a lot of these companies realize that if you have to hook the farmers and make them engage meaningfully, you have to provide a suite of services. You'll have to expand and make it appear holistic to the farmers. Mm. And that's the key challenge startups face. That's the key challenge companies like Olamots will face. Can we succeed in providing input advisory, market access, insurance, financing, weather, everything that we think of as a one-stop solution? Can we create an ecosystem for farmers where the farmers find it very meaningful to engage on such a platform for buying, or selling 
producers and services. That's going to be the challenge. Yeah, so the challenge is once you have their attention, you have this dialogue with the farmers. Now you're building effectively a platform, which now that you've solved one problem for the farmer and built trust with them, you have permission effectively to solve other problems, which like you say, maybe insurance. And that then offers you know, partnerships with other providers because effectively you have the relationship with the farmer that they can get on your platform. Do you see the platform evolving in that sense where you will partner with multiple parties in the ecosystem who would want access to farmers, but because you have the trusted relationship and dialogue with them, that they could then do better simply by plugging into your platform rather than building their own? Yeah, we are seeing early responses uh, on the direction. Uh, wherever we have rolled out this direct buying solution, and as it is getting scaled up and the market players are beginning to notice, they are approaching us to see how they could collaborate. For example, we have interest evidence by Yara in Latin America and South America to see how they could use our platform to distribute farm inputs. Indonesia, we have been approached by a large local input distributor for using our platform. We've been approached by a telecom company to see if they could explore using our network for last mile uh, mobile uh, wallet solutions. So we see these trends emerging and uh, you're right in saying that I think uh, it could very nicely add on to the uh, basic transaction Olam is doing with the farmers. And we have to be very clear here. I think Olam, I would say, as an advantage in adding services because the primary hook feature is transacting the basic produce with the farmer, right? Mm. Most other people who are providing a specific service always find this as a challenge of being the off-taker of what the farmer is producing. Because to be an off-taker, you need to have different capabilities of being able to liquidate what you're buying at prices which will not result in huge financial loss for you. And since Olam is in the business of cocoa in Indonesia, the offtake provides us great stickiness with farmers, allowing us to add more services. So I think if, if we are able to expand this model of buying direct from farmers for uh, multiple products in multiple countries, that could be a natural segue to adding on other services that, for example, we are uh, piloting in India to the same platform, making the farmers stick to a platform and finding it very meaningful in terms of the outcome that they desire is, is you know, somehow provided by the uh, uh, platform. Yeah. In terms of your innovation strategy with this community, how does it take form? Are you going to farmers with a hypothesis of the the, the products and services you may think work for them? Or are you reading the data and their you know, that could be the, the qualitative data, for example, what they're saying to you and saying, you know, we have farmers telling us they want X, therefore we're going to create X for them or find a partner who might be able to create X for them. How does that work? Are you sort of leading the innovation there with your, you know, lab-led experiments and, and putting them into the field or are they coming to you and you're responding to that? I think it's more uh, driven by the needs of the farmers based on our... Uh, uh, research and knowledge of different crops in different countries and the problems farmers are facing. But secondly, it's also led by the startup industry. So we have a very active uh, sensing uh, program. We have not invested significantly in internal innovation, but we are constantly scouting for startups across the world, whether it's California, Australia, Israel, India, Singapore, Indonesia. We have uh, scanned hundreds of companies and uh, we attend events focusing on AgTech like the Rethink in November and invite startups for uh, meaningful discussions in terms of how we could enable them to conduct pilots in our supply chain, which could eventually be scaled up into uh, a proper solution. Mm -hmm. An example I could give you is we had a problem in Indonesia to measure moisture of the cocoa that we were buying. And because of the new model, the moisture range was very high and there was no conventional uh, meter to measure that high moisture content in cocoa. So we worked with a Israeli company called Consumer Physics. They had an infrared uh, device 
we calibrated the same device with a smart sensor to be able to use it for our cocoa supply chain in Indonesia. And that proved to be a win-win for both OLAM and consumer physics. Now it's scaled up and all our field operatives carry a small device uh, that allows them to measure the moisture and cocoa and price uh, accordingly. Similarly, currently we, we have invited a company called Green Eye Technology based in Israel and uh, US uh, to do some field trials in Russia for uh, using artificial intelligence to identify weeds and uh, spray. You know, so we uh, try to leverage a lot with the uh, ag tech community mm-hmm. and see how we can work together. Internal innovation on just uh, new solutions is not so high because I believe that, uh, you know, it's more like collaborate to win rather mm-hmm. than compete to win. And if somebody has already done it, there's no point in relearning the same uh, inventions, going through the same journey. Absolutely. Suresh, I feel there's so much more that we could talk about, but I'm conscious of the time and with rethinks. Agri Food Innovation Week around the corner as well. Maybe we could uh, just sort of round up by sharing some of your hopes for the kind of innovations you'd like to see at the event. Do you have a shopping list of things that you'd like to see or are you just open to all ideas at this stage? What particularly would interest you seeing somebody putting a pitch deck in front of you at this event? Yeah, I think more than a shopping list, I would like to see the focus of ag tech players making a significant shift to addressing the problems faced by smallholder farmers. Most of the ag tech players currently, I think, are focused in solving problems of large growers in Europe and North America. Well, that is good. That that definitely is needed. I would like to see uh, all the startups having tailor-made solutions to address problems faced by smallholder farmers, which means taking into consideration the ground realities in Asia, Africa, and South America in terms of uh, infrastructure issues uh, like connectivity, the cost of data, the size of farm holdings, and come up with solutions. It's happening in India, for example. The Indian startups are trying to address the Indian farmers, uh, majority of whom have less than one hectare. So whether it is providing a tractor on rent or it's providing market access, they're trying to focus on uh, 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 the size of the farm holdings. I wish the Asian ag tech startup scene also is uh, heavily skewed towards uh, addressing the needs of farmers in Asia, which would make a real impact in in benefiting the farmers here. See, in the end of the day, any successful disruptor in ag tech has to realize value to, to continue and sustain investments. They have to make, they have to create value, they have to make money in this process. And the way how the value can be shared is in the supply chain, there's a lot of wastage today. How we can eliminate that wastage. So once you eliminate that wastage, you get access to a large value pool. And then how do you then uh, remove the value appropriated by middlemen and by providing the right market access, uh, affordable cost of financing and insurance to the small farmers? That again creates more value uh, back into the supply chain. So for me, ag tech, the end game should be how they can influence and in increasing the value in the uh, supply chain and how a sizable part of it could be moved to the first mile to, to, to the farmers and growers in these countries. So last year, we met a few interesting uh, companies like Interlo Labs. We're working on a project with them. And this year, uh, we hope to see you know uh, many more new companies as well as existing ones and try to see how we can collaborate with them. I'm, for example, very keen to meet up with Dehart uh, in India. I believe one of the founders is going to be in a panel and be open about how Olam can uh, you know uh, provide access to these companies and collaborate compared to looking at it as as, as a, a competitive landscape. Absolutely. That is Suresh Sundararajan, everybody, from Olam International. Suresh, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Looking forward to hearing more from you at the event. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Welcome back. This is Graham. I'm talking to Jenny Moss, Managing Director from Rethink Events. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi there. So we're talking about Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week. It's coming up in November. You're gathering together all the stakeholders in the agri-food ecosystem. Why? It's a big challenge. 
Yeah, well, I think the reason we're bringing this summit to Singapore is that we see some of the global challenges facing the agri-food system and how incredibly prevalent they are in Asia. Mm. Um, we also see that there's a great opportunity in, in Southeast Asia and India and China to um, develop and implement some exciting technologies. And Singapore's really at the heart of that. Fantastic. Well, it's a great vantage point into Asia, isn't it? What are the challenges that we're talking about? Maybe we can run through those. I mean, people will be aware, obviously, Asia has the challenge of populations of billions. How does that translate into the pressure on the agri-food ecosystem? Well, absolutely. So we've got a, a you know a growing population. We've also got increasing urbanisation. Um, we're also experiencing the challenges of climate change in terms of drought and flood and the impact that has on on crops and in terms of production. Um, we're also seeing a lot of change in terms of diet, in terms of consumer preferences, and that Im uh, impacts all the way back through the food supply chain right back to, to the farm. Mm. Um, so what we're seeing really is a need to kind of farm in a much more sustainable, resilient and efficient way, and also to produce food that is much higher in nutritional content. Don't you feel at any point overwhelmed by the size of the challenge? You mentioned, for example, the population challenge, urbanization, climate change, changing diet and sustainability. It, it, to me, these are so large, these problems that you, you may just feel disempowered. You say, look, it's just too much. How, how do you address that? And the people coming to the conference as well maybe feel this is such a massive challenge. That what what is like achievable in such a short time? No, absolutely. Well, I think what's exciting is that there is so much innovation already underway at every stage of the agri-food supply chain. So there are lots and lots of people doing really exciting things, right from farming technology to supply chain solutions, to new methods of farming in an urban environment, to developing new ingredients that are more sustainable and produce a higher quality, more nutritious product. product. It's all going on already. Mm. So I think the challenge for us and the reason we bring together this conference is to look at, okay, we've got this challenge, we've got all this innovation. How do we actually then pull the right people together and put the right measures in place to actually bring those solutions to market and implement change at scale? And that's mm. the reason behind this summit. It's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of these innovations are very localized, aren't they? And, you know, the, the, the people who are developing them are spending so much time hedged literally in the weeds of the solution that they're not sort of looking around the industry and saying, who else is doing what? That you find in the, these ecosystems that everybody's very much focused on their own world. They're not aware of what's going on. So what kind of effect do you get when you bring all these people together who may for the first time be seeing other people doing different things in different markets? Do you see that kind of like, you know, the outsider's perspective like, or you see that problem in a different market? Is that where the magic happens? Absolutely. I mean, as you rightly say, a lot of the time innovation happens in silos. Um, yeah. And we very much believe that um, for uh, change to happen at scale, it's all about collaboration. And that might be between startups collaborating with a large corporate who has the, the manufacturing and the distribution network to help bring that product to market. It might be about a company meeting the right investors who've got the capital to enable them to scale. It might be connecting with the government and being able to, you know, discuss the regulatory environment and try and get some of those changes made that are going to enable new technologies to, to take off in a specific market. So absolutely, the, the goal of the conference really is to, is to bring all the stakeholders together, startups, large corporates, investors, research institutes, government, to look at firstly, you know, what are the biggest challenges we're facing? Secondly, what innovation is taking place and, you know, to, to, to share those ideas, share those experiences. And thirdly, to form the right kind of collaborations and mm. partnerships that can actually accelerate some of those products coming to market. And as you mentioned, Graham, sometimes it's about actually two people who may be doing um, similar work in parallel, actually coming together and by joining together, being able to um, accelerate um, the, the pace of change and the pace of commercialization. Well, I really sense your energy, Jenny, and the excitement about the event as well. And going to these kind of events, especially in agri-food, have you ever been sort of 
I suppose mind blown by stuff that you didn't expect because you know maybe there are lots of technologies that you might expect to see there but have you ever had your sort of assumptions challenged when you've been surrounded by people who you may not have thought of been thinking about things in this way or that maybe they think about a problem in a unique way you thought wow I never thought of it like that Absolutely. I mean, one of the exciting things we have is our sort of technology showcases at the event, which is where we have startups um, come along and and pitch the new solutions they're developing. And some of those are a very, very early stage. Mm. Um, and what we're doing in Singapore is we have 12 startups that we all, from all across Southeast Asia and um, from different countries and with different solutions. Um, and it's really exciting to see some of the really innovative ideas that, that they come up with. And that might be, you know, a robot for harvesting crops or it might be a sort of a biotech solution that can sort of dramatically reduce the, the sugar content in a certain food. Um, so some of these things that really are, are quite transformational and they might be very early stage um, and they may not even be commercial um, you know, they may not be able to reach commercialization in their current form, but there are ideas that are potentially changing the way we think about doing things and actually then, you know, will lead into and feed into change on a, on a larger scale. Yeah. I suppose also a key part of that ecosystem, you've mentioned the startups and the really, you know, the <laughs> grassroots innovation. Coming from the other side, the big tech giants who have the resources, they have the distribution that can help these startups. So the people mm. who are probably aware of Alibaba's and the 10 cents here in Asia, but you also have Microsoft and Google, you know, the, the large players who, you, they may not be obvious players or stakeholders in the agri-food ecosystem, but are you seeing them more actively involved and what kind of role are they playing and how are they sort of partnering up here? Absolutely. I think that's been a really interesting change over the last few years that, yes, we're seeing some of these players come in, including uh, um, Amazon and Microsoft and, you know, coming into the ag tech space. Mm. And obviously they, you know, they have the the networks and the platforms and the, you know, the the reach to actually really kind of uh, connect with, 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 with farmers and with producers and with the supply chain at a huge scale that hasn't been done before. So I think what will be interesting is how we see um, – those big giants collaborating with startups um, and yeah, the, and, the, and the potential reach that will bring to that technology is going to be really exciting to see over the next five to 10 years. Is there one specific area that you'd be really excited to see? So for example, you know, what kind of innovation do you feel that maybe people didn't even know about outside the agri-tech industry or agri-food that you feel that like you've got to look at this because this is going to really sort of challenge what you think about agriculture today. You know, I think we're aware of, for example, like, you know, drones and robots and those kind of technologies involved, but there's such a range of different technologies and applications right down to the molecular level, all the way up to distribution and platforms and so on that people didn't aware, uh, you know, they're not aware of these things happening out there in agriculture. Now, if I was to look at one thing that would really sort of blow my mind as an attendee, what kind of things do you think I should start looking at? One thing that's really critical at the moment is kind of soil health. And I think our understanding of the soil microbiome, um, a bit mm. like, you know, we're growing our understanding of the human microbiome and the animal microbiome and, you know, understanding the soil microbiome um, and how we can harness the power of that knowledge to develop new products that, that are going to protect our soils and enable a longer term, more sustainable agriculture. I think that's going to be so exciting. Mm. So I think something that people feel very passionate about is the sort of excessive use of toxic chemicals and pesticides and, and fertilizers. And I think sort of some of that change in the way we look at our soils and our understanding of, and the ability to kind of apply more natural and biological products um, is going to be really exciting. And it might sound like we're sort of going back to nature or back to mm -hmm. basics, but actually the, the research and the tech behind those products is, is really, really exciting. Um, and I think that's something that we will, we will see, um, you know, at scale over the next over the coming years and i think think that's something that will really connect with people as well when they're looking at the food they're eating and knowing that it's being farmed in, in you know with products that are much more sustainable and natural i think that's going to really appeal to, to consumers i find that a fascinating area you're talking about the mm -hmm. microbiome of soils which is really mm -hmm. you know, it's a paradigm shift isn't it in the same way that 
almost now in healthcare, when you look at the human body in an organism, you're talking about the human biome, which is, <laughs> I don't know what the numbers are, but a very large percentage of the body is made up by bacteria. And in the same mm -hmm. way that bacteria, which traditionally is seen as a threat or some invasive organism, is actually fundamentally part of the ecosystem, isn't it? And so that whole sort of paradigm shift now in farming towards this understanding of the ecology in a different way that's happening. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I mean, I was speaking to Justin Gong from XAG in China, mm -hmm. that they were saying that even farmers get it now. This is not just, okay, this is nice that we can sell this as an organic product or this is grass-fed beef or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Actually, the economics make sense. So it's almost like coming mm -hmm. together now. What was once seen as just a philosophical approach to farming is now hard cash in terms of, look, if you farm like this and you understand microbiome and how to apply it, and now, importantly, you have the innovation and the technology, this makes sense economically for you. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like coming together, you know, that this is not just now a nice to have for farmers and consumers, mm -hmm. right? Well, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there when we were we were speaking earlier about sort of some of the the challenges to innovation. Um, you know that 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 path to adoption for farmers to adopt a, a new solution, a new technology, or a new method of farming, there has to be a very clear you know return on that investment. There has to be you know it has to improve their livelihood, it has to improve their income. So you know, absolutely, I think we're at an exciting point with these technologies, both on the the kind of um, tech side. So some of the you know the satellite and drone technology, remote sensing, some of those farm management platforms, and also on the, um, you know, advanced seeds and crop protection products that, you know, we are at that critical point where actually it's not just a, a good to do, it's actually, you know, it makes financial sense as well. Um, and so you're absolutely right. I think this is the tipping point where, you know, we're going to go into sort of large scale adoption of some of these solutions by, by farmers. Why do you think there is so much innovation at the moment in agri-food? What, what is the, is it because the, the, the problems are so fundamental or so big or it's like time's running out or has yeah, something shifted in recent years? What has been that sort of step change? Has people, have people started feeling, you know, the, the sense of urgency or is it because of the onboarding of new technologies? What are these sort of macro trends that are driving innovation at the moment? Yeah, I think it's it's twofold. I think it is. I think the, the climate change aspect is huge. And I think as a you know as a world, we're, we're much more um, aware and concerned of the immediacy of the challenges around climate change. And I think you know and the role of farming in that. And I think people are beginning to be more and more aware that actually farming has one of the you know most greatest impacts on, on the environment and in climate on climate change and that can be both positive and negative so i think that awareness is is growing um and so i think uh, uh, you know technology is being developed and i think a lot of the investment community are also looking to that as you know a huge macro trend and an important area to invest in i think the second area is is health i think you know globally we're seeing the kind of the parallel challenges of of malnutrition and and obesity going hand in hand and though the challenges around those in terms of uh, disease and unhealthy aging. And, you know, that's becoming real and very present for people. It's affecting people personally. It's affecting their families. You know, from a government perspective, suddenly that's becoming a real problem and a financial burden on countries in terms of coping with with ill health in in their population so i think you know that sort of it's all coming together to a point where actually governments are taking it seriously and are beginning to commit the resources and the funds to addressing these issues um, investors are looking at it you know it's it seriously and beginning to commit real capital as you mentioned you know big corporations who haven't previously been involved in this space are now getting engaged um, and then also in parallel with seeing, you know, really, really exciting startups. I think, you know, for young people coming out of university, actually, you know, if looking to, to, to put together a startup, you know, something related to food and agriculture is now seen as something really exciting to do, whereas maybe that wasn't the case sort of mm. 10, 10 years ago. It's a perfect storm. And you add to that mm -hmm. Asia, which makes the whole thing sort of at a different level of innovation. You've got all of that coming mm -hmm. out of, I mean, the, the two interviews I did prior to this with um, obviously the, the case studies in India and China as well. You know, mm -hmm. you've got all of that sort of grassroots innovation filtering out as well, empowered by these new technologies. 
it's going to make for a great event. So I'm very much looking forward to this. How do we as listeners, as we, as potential stakeholders in this industry get involved? What would be the easiest way to get on board with the Agri-Food Innovation Week? Absolutely. So everything is online at agrifoodinnovation.com. So you'll be able to see the agenda, the speakers, you'll be able to find out more about lots of the networking events we've got happening throughout the week. And also you can register to attend and you can take part just one day if there's a specific area that's of interest to you, or you can book for the whole three-day event. Fantastic. That is Jenny Moss, everybody, Managing Director of Rethink Events, who will be running the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week in November. And Jenny, I'm sure you're going to be at the event as well. So anybody that's listening to this podcast, please reach out or to anybody that's been involved in the podcast as well. Jenny, thank you very much today. Thank you very much, Graham. You have been listening to the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. To join three full days of insights and networking for the Asian agri-food ecosystem, visit us at www.agrifoodinnovation.com or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook.